This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. Hello. Welcome. My name is Camille Lannan. I'm the director of the literary program here at Lannan Foundation. And I'm so glad that you could join us for Poetry Sunday with Noyen Fan Kwemai and Bruce Weigel. Bruce Weigel is the recipient of a 2006 Lannan Literary Award for Poetry. His collection, The Abundance of Nothing, was one of three finalists for the Pulitzer Prize in 2013. And Kemai's collection, The Secret of Huasen, is his most recent translation project. Bruce will introduce Kwemai to you. I just want to remind you all to please turn off your cell phones and let you know that we'll have a brief Q&A after the reading. So I hope you all stick around, and also a reception, two buildings over here on the Lannan campus. So welcome, enjoy. Good afternoon. Thank you all for being here. Let me first introduce my friend and colleague, Nguyen Phan Quay Mai who was born in the northern province of Vietnam and was raised in the delta of Vietnam, uh, the daughter of uh, school teachers who were also farmers. Uh, she grew up as a child selling cigarettes on the street and uh, vegetables in the marketplace. Uh, she uh, was uh, awarded a, a scholarship to study in Australia where she received her undergraduate degree and then worked for several years as a development professional in Vietnam and then began her work as a translator and uh, a poet. Uh, let me talk a little bit about my translation uh, efforts. I began 20 years ago translating, uh, co-translating the work of Vietnamese poets. Uh, I had this immodest idea that I could make a difference in terms of a kind of international reconciliation. And that was the driving force behind that work. And I was able to convince others to join me in this madness. And we began to uh, translate uh, several poets, contemporary poets, from uh, Vietnam, as well as uh, I just finished work on an anthology of 108 poems uh, spanning uh, Vietnam's uh, many, many uh, hundreds of years of poetry. Um, Quay Mai, uh, uh, I met her five years ago in Hanoi at a literary conference where we did some uh, instant translation work and figured out that we worked fairly well together. I was delighted when I translated the first of her poems to find this magic uh, that, that I immediately related to and wanted to then devote myself to uh, this book, The Secret of Boisin, which we worked for three years together on, over the mail, over the internet, Skyping, on the telephone, and in, in Vietnam. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to be able to uh, share these poems with you today. And what we're going to do is, uh, uh, I'd like to read the poem first in English, so that when you hear the Vietnamese, you already have an idea about what you're hearing. So we'll do that for most of the reading. I'm going to intersperse some poems from The Abundance of Nothing, because this is a book that I wrote largely uh, with the support of the Land Foundation grant that I received in 2006 and 2009. So uh, I think it's important that I share some of these poems with you today. Um, so, please. Thank you so much for being here today. It's cold outside, but I feel warm with your presence here. Um, you know, when I was invited to come here to do poetry reading, I told my mother about it. And she said, America, of all countries? 
You know, in 1972, uh, at the height of the Vietnam-America War, um, my mother was pregnant, just became pregnant, and um, the road on which she was traveling was bombed, and uh, she jumped down into a shelter. She thought the baby would die. The baby didn't. The baby's here in America. <laughs> so um, it says so much about the power of poetry as a mean of reconciliation. I would like to thank you so much to the Lennon Foundation for your generous support and belief in my work. Thank you for Professor Bruce Weigel for working so hard with me on this project. Many times I push him over the limit, I think. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> but we had great fun together, and um, I'm really excited uh, to share with you my personal stories today uh, through this poem. And uh, the first poem we are going to read is called The Gardener in the Royal Citadel. The Gardener in the Royal Citadel. Thunder bends tree trunks. The gardener engrosses himself in sowing each seed of grass. Tempests sink the city. The gardener engrosses himself in sowing each seed of grass. Plumero flowers are white around his gray hair. Flamboyant flowers red alongside his faded shirt. Lotus flowers pink under his cracked hands. Royal courts decline. The gardener engrosses himself in sowing each seed of grass. On the collapsed royal dynasties, the sweat of humans rises from their ashes. Người làm vườn trong đại nội tặng những người dân Huế tiếng sét oàn thân cây. Người làm vườn miệt mài ươm từng mầm cỏ. Lũ nhấn chìm thành phố, người làm vườn miệt mài ươm từng mầm cỏ. Hoa đại trắng trên tóc ông bà, hoa phượng đỏ bên áo ông phai, hoa sen hồng dưới bàn tay thô giáp. Những chiều đại lụi tàn, người làm vườn miệt mài ươm từng mầm cỏ. Trên những chiều vua đã đổ, mồ hôi người vươn lên tươi xanh. Um, so when I think about Vietnam, I think about my mother. Like Vietnam, my mother has gone through so many wars and suffered a lot of loss and suffering. But like Vietnam, she's the most graceful and beautiful person, the most generous and kind person I ever know. This poem is dedicated to her and to my Vietnam, my mother's rights. Through the eyes of my childhood, I watched my mother, who labored in a kitchen built from straw and mud. She lifted a pair of chopsticks and twirled sunlight into a pot of boiling rice. The perfume of a new harvest soaked her worn shirt as she bent and fed rice straws to the hungry flames. I wanted to come and help, but the child in me pulled myself into a dark corner where I could watch my mother's face teach beauty how to glow in hardship and how to sing the rice to cook with her sun-baked hands. That day in our kitchen, 
I saw how perfection was arranged by soup-blackened pans and pots and by the bent back of my mother, so thin she would disappear if I wept or cried out. Um, let me add uh, something uh, to my earlier comments. Uh, after 1975, which, uh, after, which the Vietnamese referred to as the liberation, uh, uh, literature uh, changed dramatically in Vietnam. Uh, uh, there was a slight opening to Western influences. Uh, a little bit later, uh, in, in 1990, there was a policy uh, put in place called Du Moi, or Open Door, uh, which uh, further encouraged interaction with the West. This had a dramatic effect on Vietnamese literature. Uh, works that were ha- had been prohibited from being translated were now being translated and read widely by not only Vietnamese readers, uh, but Vietnamese writers as well. And uh, Quay Mai is a result, uh, one of the results of this new uh, way of thinking about literature. So what, one of the things that initially attracted me to her work was this combination of, of the traditional values, the traditional imagery and, and the old stories, but with this modern twist of things. So I hope that will become clear as you hear these poems. Gian bếp của mẹ Qua đôi mắt tuổi thơ, tôi nhìn mẹ tôi tất cả trong gian bếp được dựng lên bằng dơm và bùn quánh. Mẹ nhấc đũa lên, cuối nắng và nồi cơm đang sôi. Vạt áo mẹ đậm hương thơm của mùa gặt mới, tay mẹ mớm dơm khô trong ngọn lửa đói bập bùng. Tôi muốn đến cạnh bên và giúp mẹ, nhưng đứa trẻ trong tôi kéo tôi chui vào góc bếp tối thẳm. Từ nơi đó, tôi nhìn gương mặt mẹ dạy cho vẻ đẹp cách bừng lên trong gian khổ và cách hát cho cơm sôi bằng đôi tay dám nắng của người. Ngày hôm đó, trong gian bếp của tuổi thơ tôi, sự hoàn hảo được sắp đặt bằng những chiếc nồi đen tuyền bồ hóng và bởi chiếc lưng của mẹ mỏng manh chống tránh sẽ biến mất nếu tôi khóc hay kêu lên. Uh, so you know um, throughout long history Vietnam has suffered a lot of uh, foreign invasions first by the Chinese armies um, uh, then the French the Japanese and then the American war. In the year 1945 uh, the great hunger caused by the, the Japanese um, brought something Uh, the Great Famine, and uh, nearly two million people died. Um, one of those is my father's mother. So my mother died together with her very young son and her brother. So uh, a lot of people, so many people in my village died that there were very few living people to bury the dead. So we didn't know where she was buried. For 65 years, My, my father searched for the grave of his mother. And, you know, in, the, in Vietnamese culture, we believe we have to bring the soul home. And the way to bring the soul home is we go to the grave and we burn the incense. And the smoke of the incense will lead the person home. And because of that, my father was very, very sad. And um, just um, some years ago, my, my auntie went to a fortune teller. My auntie still lives in our village. And... The fortune teller had a dream and told her where to go. So next to a rice field, they dug up a, a patch of grass and they found three, um, the, uh, three sets of bones. One, one set of adult bones hugging a child with another adult lying beside her. And we knew it was my grandmother. And I was 
I, I could come back to, to my village before uh, my father did. So I imagined that he was there with me. And I wrote this poem for my grandma as well as my father. Is that too luck in the back? No, I guess it's not. <laughs> the poem I can't yet name. My hands lift a bowl of rice, the seeds harvested in the field where my grandmother was laid to rest. Each rice seed tastes sweet as the sound of lullaby from the grandmother I never knew. I imagined her soft face as they laid her down into the earth, her clothes battered, her skin stuck to her bones in the great hunger of 1945, my village starved for graves to bury all the dead. Nobody could find my grandmother's grave, so my father tasted bitter rice for 65 years. After 65 years of searching, spirits of my ancestors led my father and me to my grandmother's grave. I heard my father call Mum for the first time. The rice field behind his back trembled. My feet clung to the mud. I listened in the burning incense how my grandmother's soul spread, joining the earth, taking root in the field where she quietly sang lullabies, calling the rice plants to blossom. Lifting the bowl of rice in my hands, I count every seed, each one glistening with the sweat of my ancestors, their backs bent in the rice fields, the fragrance of my grandmother's lullaby alive on each one. Bài thơ chưa thể đặt tên Nâng bát cơm tên tay tôi đếm từng hạt gạo Những hạt gạo gặp từ cánh đồng bà tôi nằm xuống Từng hạt gạo ngọt thơm như lời du của bà Người tôi chưa hề biết mặt Tôi hình dung khuôn mặt bà mềm mại Khi bà được chôn vào lòng đất Quần áo tơi tả Da dính chặt với xương Trận đói năm 45 Làng tôi đói mồ chôn xác chết Mổ bà không ai biết Bát cơm đắng miệng cha tôi 65 năm 65 năm sau Hương hồn tổ tiên dẫn cha và tôi đến trước mộ bà Lần đầu tiên tôi nghe cha gọi mẹ Cánh đồng lúa sau lưng cha run rẩy Hai chân tôi gắn chặt vào bùn Nghe trong khói hương hồn bà lan tỏa Bám sâu vào đất mọc rễ vào ruộng đồng Bà xe sẽ hát du gọi lúa chỗ đồng Nâng bát cơm trên tay tôi đếm từng hạt gạo Từng hạt óng ánh mồ hôi của tổ tiên tôi còng lưng gieo hạt Từng hạt óng ánh thơm lời du của bà tôi Đơm lên từ lòng đất Ngoài kia, trong hoàng hôn Lời du bà tôi khe khẽ chỗ đồng Uh, you know, in Vietnam, um, the women. Oh, sorry. I missed something. <laughs> um, I would like Bruce to now to read one of his poems. <laughs> At home, he just reminded me. I forgot. <laughs> the way Dante moved virtual through hell. You know, I don't think uh, enough people realize uh, the significant impact that uh, an award like the Lennon Foundation grant has on a writer's life. Um, what it allowed me was a year and a half of nothing but writing time. 
Uh, and that's, that's gold. That's so invaluable to a writer to have that. Uh, even though we're, we're lazy and most of us make our living teaching. Uh, uh, to have that free time to be able to wake up in the morning and know that all I have to do is work on my book of poems is such a gift. And I'll be eternally grateful uh, for, for that gift from the Lennon Family Lennon Foundation. And uh, I'm most proud of this book. Uh, this is my 13th book of poems, and I know that it's my best. Uh, and I wouldn't have written it without that valuable, the, the gift of that, uh, that valuable time. So that's why I wanted to share some of these. This is a crazy poem called Why Dante Moved Virgil Through Hell. The way Dante moved Virgil through hell. So the, uh, uh, Dante is, uh, is uh, confronted with this problem when he's writing his great poem because no living being has returned from hell to tell his or her story. And no living being can move through hell uh, without being dead. Uh, so Dante has to somehow... Dante is a man of great faith and, and believes his, his, uh, his faith. So he has to figure out how to do this. And, and he comes upon a very clever, uh, if not pedestrian, way of doing it. And that is he just has some faint and then wake up in the next level. So I, I somehow saw my life in that story. Please, your words fly past so quickly I'm dizzy, sick, like when clouds zoom past so quickly. Like at the carnival, remember? the dying shopping mall, horrific in the archive of somehow, but it was not a strange gratuity of clowns and had more to do with some roughnecks who ran the rides, but I can't remember, so don't walk me down that alleyway between tents, muddy from the recent rain. Why have they let us out so late and alone? There's scurrying, but I don't know if it's in my head or not. I don't know if it's inside of time or not. The tilt-a-whirl was not my last escape. So into the rubber night I crept, nothing in my mind but thoughts. Then later, behind the sodden, artsy warehouse of random longing, behind the invasion of certain thoughts, like having soup later with the girl from Bingluk, that have the will to lift you up right off your feet into contrails above the stadium where I found some words whispered from blowing limbs of willow trees far away, but also alive in the night sky right above our heads as we tried to get over the strangeness that lingered like a thing lingers when there's been some hurtful problem that sends you reeling into thoughts of dying's bright and faithful enterprise. And even at the sheets, 24-hour coffee bar, my dying body fell in love with strangers. Oh, the light off that lake is so inviting that I think of this as the end of my life, as in the phrase, the end of his life. And it could happen to you that some cool air blows through the window extravagantly open to the unattended night so you're delivered, raptured style, to another place. It happens to me all the time. Um, so in Vietnam, many women um, have to abandon their villages and go to the cities and work. Um, without them, their children wouldn't be able to continue schooling. And as I lived in Hanoi, many of those women passed through my doors, and they carry with them on their shoulder, um, um, you know, uh, the uh, bamboo poles, and on which um, there are bamboo baskets uh, piled with fruits and different types of vegetables. So this poem is dedicated to the street sellers of Hanoi. It's called Stars in the Shape of Carrying Poles. 
the women carry the seasons of guava, mango, and plum to me, the seasons of lotus, green young sticky rice on their shoulders, bringing me the enlightened sunrise, the blue sunset, dragging their sandal footsteps on the road. With such little money, I can buy the seasons of guava and lotus, the small bills silently soaked with dew, soaked with sweat. Behind these women's back, from orphan village fields, the wind howls endlessly. They open their embrace, empty lullabies swollen with milk. They carry countless virgin seasons to me, the seasons I would have forgotten without them. The aroma of Hungyan just coming into being, the lotus of Westlake just coming into blood, Vong village restless to produce the green young sticky rice. They carry to me the fresh breeze from their village where their mothers, children, and husbands stand waiting, where dreams are thirsty and struggle. I hear their faint singing. In difficulty, the poles press heavy on my shoulder, but I find ways to feed my mother, ignoring people's laughs. They are my stars, carrying their difficult fates on their shoulders, unknown in life, gazing burning questions into my eyes. Những ngôi sao hình quang gánh Họ gánh về cho tôi những mùa ổi, mùa xoài, mùa mận Mùa sen, mùa cốm trên vai Cả nắng ban mai, cả hoàng hôn tím Ngày đi rưng rưng đôi dép lê Tôi mua được mùa ổi, mùa sen bằng đồng bạc lẻ Những đồng bạc lặng lẽ, thấm đẫm sương đêm, thấm đẫm mồ hôi. Sau lưng họ đồng làng mồ côi hun hút gió, vòng tay ngỏ, lời du con căng sữa. Họ gánh về cổng tôi ba mùa trinh nguyên, những mùa tôi sẽ quên nếu thiếu họ. Hương nhãn hương yên vừa vào mùa, sen tây hồ vừa nở, cống làng vòng vừa chăn trở những hạt xanh. Họ gánh tặng tôi dọn hậu ngọn gió mát lành đồng quê Nơi mẹ và con và chồng họ đứng chờ Nơi cơn mơ vùng vẳng khác Tôi văng vẳng nghe họ hát Khó thời đòn gánh đè vai Lần hồi núi mẹ Lần hồi núi mẹ mặc ai chê cười Những ngôi sao của tôi gánh trên vai mình Hầm hiu số phận Vô danh giữa đời thường đặt vào mắt tôi Bao tia nhìn mang hình dấu hỏi Trust me, you didn't want to hear me sing that in English. <laughs> you should, right? <laughs> the next poem is The Sea. I'll read in Vietnamese first. Yes. How about that? Biển Hóa thân trắng Lao vào con sóng trắng Biển dịu kỳ, biển mở rộng vòng tay Sóng trồm lên điệu tango cuồn nhiệt Nhấn chìm ta trong một chiếc hôn dài Biến vạn vỡ, trẻ trung gân guốc, thoai thoải gồ ghề mềm mại đam mê. Kéo ta trôi vào từng cung bậc, 
Thiên đường đây ư ta sao biết lối về San hô đỏ Đàn cá xanh uốn lượng Nắng gọi mời bằng vũ điệu thủy tinh Biển mê hoặc Trong tận cùng hơi thở Tan vào biển xanh Ta hồi sinh It's such a beautiful poem in Vietnamese. It was one of the most difficult poems to translate. There were so many subtleties. Um, it's very important when you hear me read this poem uh, in English that, that you imagine the woman standing next to me and not me. You, you'll see why. The sea. Naked in white, I dash into the white waves. So you didn't want to see. <laughs> Naked in white, I dash into the white waves. The sea of wonder pins me down in an embrace. The waves above me in a tango that entwines me in a long kiss as deeply as he can. Is it heaven here? Do I find? How do I find my way home? Red coral, blue shoals of undulating fish enchanting me until my last breath, dissolving myself into the sea, I rise in my rebirth. Um, you know, um, around three million people died in the Vietnam-American America war. And um, I have a couple of friends who never found a grave or their fathers. So um, I have a really close friend who, for the last um, 40 years, he saves every penny, and every summer he goes back to the um, former battlefields of his father. He asked for information, and he tried uh, to, to find the grave. And this uh, poem is called Separated World. Separated Worlds. Graves of unknown soldiers whiten the sky. Children looking for their father's graves whiten the earth. Rain tatters down onto both of them. Children who haven't known their father's faces. Fathers who live the lives of wandering souls. Their shouts to each other buried deep in their chests. Yet through more than 30 years, the shouts stay alive. Tonight I hear their footsteps coming from two separate worlds. The hurried trembling footsteps finding each other in the dark, the footsteps sucked dry of blood, lost through millions of miles, lost through thousands of centuries. With each footstep I place in my country, how many bodies of wandering souls will I step on? How many oceans of tears of those who haven't yet found the graves of their fathers? Hai nẻo trời và đất Trắng trời những ngôi mộ vô danh Trắng đất những người con đi tìm mộ bố Mưa tả tơi xuống họ Những đứa con chưa biết mặt cha Những người cha không thể trở về nhà Tiếng gọi con còn chôn sâu trong ngực Tiếng gọi cha hơn 30 năm thao thức Đêm nay tôi nghe tiếng chân cha và con Từ hai nẻo trời và đất Những bước chân dần dật lần tìm về nhau Những bước chân cạn máu lạc nhau qua triệu dặm đường Lạc nhau qua nghìn thế kỷ Mỗi bàn chân tôi đặt trên đất nước Đang lặn đặt lên bao nhiêu thân thể lạnh khói hương trong lòng đất Dẫm lên bao nhiêu nước mắt Của những người con chưa tìm được mộ cha mình You know, um 
when I um, I met Bruce in the year 2010 at a U.S. Vietnam literature conference, and I didn't know him at that time, and I heard his poem, Song of Nepal. And then I sat there and I thought, I, w- I have to translate his work. I want Vietnamese people to understand the American people. I want the Vietnamese people to understand the human souls, the beautiful souls of the Americans. Because many American veterans have come back to Vietnam and have tried to make a difference. And, um, you know, it's very difficult for poetry to be published in Vietnam. But when I presented uh, the translated collection of Bruce Weigel to Toy Chair Publishing House, the top publishing house in Vietnam, they said, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So they published right away, and we had a book tour from north to middle to south of Vietnam. And in the middle of Vietnam, the Writers' Association there took us to Trường Sơn Cemetery in Quang Chi Province. There, thousands of, of graves, many, many gra- white graves. And we found an area of uh, fallen soldiers, of graves without any, any names missing, right? And there was one grave with two gravestones. The grave bore two names. So both families believed the grave belonged to their son. And it was the most beautiful sight we saw because these gravestones were not carved by machine, but it was handwritten. Um, So to demonstrate how different uh, Vietnamese and uh, English is, I'm going to teach you some Vietnamese words. And I... May I add? So one of the... uh, difficulties faced by the translators of Vietnamese literature is that Vietnamese is a tonal language. English, as you know, is, a, is a, an essential language. Uh, so when you hear Quay Mai's poems in Vietnamese, whether you know Vietnamese or not, you can hear this wonderful music of these tones. Even in their so-called free verse, there's a real formality because of their sense of the juxtaposition of these tones. Um, uh, and, and we wanted to take a few minutes to talk about that tonal aspect of the language to give you an idea about how hard this really is. No, but this is really a, a brief lesson. So I, I think after this you will understand the poems I will read for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> so let's uh, just take uh, two words, B and O. Okay, so please repeat after me. B O is called Ba. Ba. So if you add a sack, you you have ball, 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 good, really good. <laughs> each each word, of course, means something different. With the question mark on top, it's ball, ball. Wow, really good. <laughs> this is more challenging, right? It's ball, ball, ball. Wow, amazing! <laughs> so we also have a dot. Ba, 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 ba. Really good. This is a hen. Down. Down. Ba, ba, ba. It's so much better than I am. 
<laughs> so uh, th- this is not question mark, but it's you know linking to the O. Washington DC to visit a friend and my husband took me to the Black War and um, I told him he should go in and I'll wait here a little bit and I'll go in and he was in there a long time and and still I was outside I thought I could not pay respect to those who caused so much or who contributed to so much suffering in my country 
So after a while, my husband went out. He took my hand and he said, please come in. This is a very historical monument, and if you don't, you're going to regret it. So this is what happened. Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Birdsong knocks on the White House. Lincoln's smile resounds. Sunset soaks Washington in deep red. The black wall, 58,267 names I don't know who fired gunshots into my mind, their boot tips still drenched with blood. I want to bury them once more. Agent Orange flares up its color, and the burning Pham Thi Kim Phuc runs out from the rows of names, black, silent, the silent answer for thousands of questions. A tiny rose lights up a sharp pain, a letter dim with tears that someone wrote for his dead father. Father, today is my daughter's birthday. I wish you were here to blow with her the birthday candles. There isn't a day that goes by without me thinking about you. Why, Father, why did you go to Vietnam? Why did you have to die? The rose petals wilt. Letters carpet below the black wall. Their words flicker and bleed. I hear from the gloomy earth the sounds of American fathers carrying their babies in their arms, their eye sockets like bomb craters, their hearts bullet holes. Agent Orange lives in their bodies. Their blood flows and drags their crying babies from their arms. Every name on the black wall sinks into my skin to become each face of the fallen Americans. Washington this afternoon, red sunset or tears? Um, so this poem has been uh, printed on major newspapers in Vietnam and I got quite a few um, people who, who contacted me and who wanted to talk about that and and I think I really hope that the poem hope to change their view a little bit you know understand better the human side of the war and after that visit I really could understand that the American people also suffered a great deal. And Nguyen Du, one of our very famous poets, said, when a war takes place, no one wins. The humans suffer. So, um, I just wish that, um, you know, the human race will grow up one day and stop fighting against each other. Um, so uh, Bruce is going to yes. So in the in the poem, I use an image Phan uh, Thi Kim Phuc. Um, the burning Phan Thi Kim Phuc runs out from the rows of, of names. Phan Thi Kim Phuc is a small um, was a small girl uh, who was having lunch with her family when the napalm bombs were dropped onto her village. And Nick Wood, a Vietnamese photographer. Uh, captured the picture of her burning out naked. Her body was burning. I want to add a story, a special story, because I want to add about the poetry as a means of mutual understanding and reconciliation. A couple of years ago, um, because you know, very few po- people translate poetry in Vietnam, and whenever there was a foreign delegation, 
I was often asked to help, and at that time I translated for poetry reading between American veterans and Vietnamese <coughs> veterans. And it was the first time those American veterans came back to Vietnam after 41 years. And one of, uh, one of the veterans, one of the Americans, with tears in his eyes, he told me, during the last 41 years, there was not one single night I could sleep through. Whenever I closed my eyes, I saw images of your country, and I saw your country burning, and I saw so much destruction. And I was so afraid to come back. I thought, if I'm back here, somebody would run after me with a knife on the street. But how come you're so friendly to us? How come everyone is smiling to us? So we had a poetry reading, and one of our Vietnamese um, poets, I translated his poem, and he read a poem about his mother who died in a bombing. It was a, such a painful poem, and all the Americans there, they were crying so much. So the Vietnamese poet, after reading his poem, he said, You were my enemies, but now you come back here. You are my friend. And he came to each seat, each person, and he gave them a big hug. And he kept saying, You are my friend. And I just wish that there would be more and more poetry readings like that. Poetry can heal the human soul and broaden our understanding. So, uh, Bruce, would you like to read one of your poems? I have a close writer friend in Hanoi who's a very important novelist. His name is Bao Ning. Uh, who wrote a novel that many of you know called The Sorrow of War. Uh, he was a young uh, soldier and, and uh, 90, over 90% of his uh, uh, battalion was wiped out, was killed. He, he was among uh, a few survivors. And he suffers this to this day. And he's a very difficult person to be around because uh, he's, he drinks... He, he medicates himself with alcohol, and when he drinks, the stories start coming and the horror starts coming back. And I was trapped once on the fifth floor of this <coughs> restaurant with him, and uh, I was getting a little nervous. He was getting more and more wild, and uh, I, I needed someone to help, so I called Quimani. <laughs> and she quickly came to the restaurant and uh, helped us out. So I wrote this poem called Blues for Quimani. At a bar on one Kim Lake in Hanoi, second floor of five, I think, dusky evening settling into night with my friend who survived the slaughter by Americans of 490 out of 500 of his own. Survived, I say, too easily for his sake. And he is beautifully wild in the space around us, around him with his stories, brilliant but lost too, so deeply he can't help but give it all away in his eyes, the other side of the mirror. And though we tried to toast the old pain away with good whiskey and beer from Hanoi and with the fried inner organs of animals, the haunting world would not leave his eyes, so I wanted to hide or to scream something out, to release the pressure that had grown around me, and then an angel came into the room. And in Vietnamese, she sat down with us in calm, some troubled waters. I took her hand and walked across the room 
to the empty black piano and played a streak of B-flat blues for her to try and escape the velocity of my friend's hurt, if only for a minute. And like a river, the notes flowed from my fingers, the room trembling now around a frozen center until the scale runs out and the roaring dark comes back into being. My father's from You know, um, Vietnam is a nation of uh, immigrants. A lot of Vietnamese fled the country and uh, went to the United States. But inside Vietnam, we also moved around so much due to the war, due to internal conflict, due to poverty. When I was six uh, years old, we had to leave um, our ancestral village. Mm, and we didn't have anything at that time, uh, just a couple of pans and pots and you know, bowls and chopsticks. And my father uh, told us to pack everything into bags. And we went to the train station on a buffalo, buffalo cart. And it was really dark at night. There was no street light or anything. And the train, because our hometown was so small, the train didn't stop. It kept running. And we had to jump onto the train. And my father went in first, right? And he dangled half of his body out of the window. And we had to run along. I had to run along with a bag of chopsticks and, and bowls on my back, you know. I was running. And father, father, rescue me. And he pulled me up. And as I stood there in the train that brought me away from my birthplace, I looked back and I didn't know if one day I would get the chance to go back to my birthplace. This is the poem, My Father's Home Village. Now, maybe I'll read it in Vietnamese first. Okay. Quê nội Quê nội vạt ngô dậy thì con gái ngày cha ta bé dại đợi bà về vàng vạt cỏ triển đê. Quê nội mây chiều ngủ mê ông ta thổi lửa nắng về tựa cửa mút vàng bờ ao chuồn chuồn bay cao cào cào bay thấp mức giếng khơi trong vắt gọi mưa bay về chiến tranh ập tới trai làng ra đi bóng người về lác đá nỗi đau trắng tạc trên tóc người già tuổi thơ của cha lớn cùng bom đạn sau mùa nắng hạn lũ lụt tràn về quê nội lời thề cha lồng vào nhẫn cỏ trong một chiều gió cầu hôn cùng mẹ đường làng ngăn bé bé ngăn ngát tiếng cười hoa gạo đỏ trời thay cho a pháo cưới xương dựng về răng lưới thơ thần ao làng ta oe oe khóc ngày thu sang hoa cải vàng dâm bột thì đỏ trên triển đê gió anh ta thả diều ta vùi khoai nướng ta chạy ta trốn giữa xanh mơn mởn lúa mạ mẹ reo dốc làng treo leo bao mùa thất bát dáng người còng lưng miệt mài reo hạt cánh đồng hức nứt nẻ hốc hác tia nhìn cha ta vẫn tin vẫn cày vẫn cuốc đường làng lại thơm mùi rơm thân thuộc bão về xô đổ cây gạo đầu làng lũy tre lại mọc những mùa non măng đình làng cong hoa xoan thì tím hoảng hôn xuống lá cánh cò trong những giấc mơ ta ôm rơm ngủ mùa ta no đủ vì còn quê hương yeah. Can you go back to 
So, here. Mm -hmm. So I use the image of the nhãn cỏ. The my uh, oh, he's going to read the English first, and I can explain. <laughs> my father's home village. I just heard something different from our translation. <laughs> Among the new corn, my father waited for his mother. The grass on the dike shriveled. The afternoon in deep sleep. My grandfather started the fire. Sunlight came to rest on our doorstep. What flowers made the pond golden? Dragonflies flew high. Grasshoppers flew low, calling rain to come and fill the fresh, clear well. The war rushed in. Village men left and few came back. Pain engraved white on the old one's hair. My father's childhood was filled with bombs and bullets. After the drought, the river flooded the village. My father tied his promise into a grass ring. And during a windy afternoon, he proposed marriage to my mother. The small road filled with laughter. The gal flowers set fire to the sky. The leisurely dew came to weave its nest its net on the pond. Upon the arrival of autumn, I cried my first tear. The vegetable flowers are golden, the hibiscus red. On the windy dike, my brother's kite flew high. I baked sweet potatoes in hot ash. I ran to hide among the green rice my mother had sown. Through hungry seasons, the village hill was steep, people bending their backs, patiently tending their seeds, their gazes haunted by cracked fields. My father still believed, still plowed and hoed, the village roads fragrant again with the scent of new-cut hay. Storms come, destroy the gal, the gal tree at the village gate, but the bamboo grove gave birth to a new season of young plants. The curves of the village temple, the Persian lilacs purple, the sunset with low-flying stork wings, I hug the rice straw to sleep because I keep my homeland in my heart. My harvest is rich all year round. You know what I was thinking about? When I heard it in Vietnamese, it sounded like um, um, the ring was... My father, in Vietnamese, my father tied his promise into a ring made from grass. Huh? No, he... He made a ring uh, from grass yes. because he didn't have any money. So instead of a real ring, he ties the grass together yes. and he gave me money. But in Vietnamese, I think, doesn't it say made from grass? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he checks on me all the time. <laughs> That's why I'm really like, I have to be careful. <laughs> now, here? Yes. Flash. So Bruce is going to read his poem, Flash. One of the uh, terrible truths that uh, we've learned recently in the, in the medical scientific world especially is that, uh, uh, as it turns out, uh, trauma is something that can't be erased. That trauma is something that changes us and that stays with us for all of our lives. Um, this is, you know, a curse and a blessing to those who, who suffer trauma because on one hand, it's terrible to think that this is something that I have to keep with me for the rest of my life, but on the other hand, it's nice to know that I don't have to waste any time waiting for a cure for this. It doesn't go away. 
Um, I'm fortunate because I'm a writer, so I, I get to uh, I get to uh, externalize these things in my work. Uh, so uh, I, I say that in, in case anyone might be wondering why I'm still writing about that experience 45 years later. This is called Flash. And with the tanned and lovely sergeant, I watched the upper half of a peasant man convulse in the dust, the lower half blown away by a 250-pound American bomb the Viet Cong had rigged into a booby trap. The concussion rattled my teeth in my brain. I couldn't stop watching. For a long time, no one moved. I couldn't lift my foot to take a single step. I was flushed, soaked with sweat, swooning in the movements of the dying man. I thought that if I died too, somehow, I would be released from the waves of sickness that rolled over me. But the sergeant saw something like a pale curtain come over my face. Already my eyes rolling back in my head and my knees giving way to the stinking power of someone else's death right before your eyes. So he grabbed my arm and shook me back to where I needed to go. It don't mean a thing, he said. And we turned back to the trees in their safe shadows and cool. Um, so for a few years I lived and, and worked in Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries in the world. And when I first I arrived in the evening, um, the street was filled with people. There were thousands of women walking. And I thought there must have been a festival or something. But they all looked really tired. They were dragging their feet on the road. And later I found out that they were returning from the garment factories. There were so many garment factories everywhere. And they collapsed so often and nobody seemed to care. So the next poem is The Garment Workers of Bangladesh. And I wrote this poem um, when I left Bangladesh already in 2013. It's a recent poem. So there was a garment factory that collapsed. Burned, huh? Collapsed because of um, poor quality construction. Mm. Fifty-two people dead. One hundred. Two hundred fifty. Three hundred and seventy. Five hundred. Six hundred and twenty. More than one thousand perished. Each day, as I opened the newspapers, these figures stared back at me with twisted, beautiful faces of the women of Bangladesh. I had met them a few years back. Is that okay? I had met them a few years back when I was a guest in their city of Dhaka, crowded with seclos in their footsteps as they walked before sunrise to bring light across my house. I had studied them through the drawn curtains of our two worlds but they had burrowed their burdens deep inside their eyes, so when a breeze lifted up the scars of their flowing shalwa kameez, I could see hope haloing their brown cheeks. I can still see how they had sewn the broken patches of their lives with the needles of their patience, resilience and hard work into shirts that men in the West paid for with a peck of dirt. 
And now as the weight of greed collapses onto their heads, squashing them to dust, their hands still so, and their hearts sing to lull the wailings of their children, born and unborn, into a silenced song that the world doesn't care about or stop to listen to as we proudly march to work, our clothes sewn with broken fingers and drenched with the invisible blood of the garment workers of Bangladesh. Những người công nhân, công nhân dệt may Bangladesh 52 người chết 100, 250, 370, 500, 620 Hơn 1.000 người chết Mỗi ngày tôi mở báo những con số căng mắt nhìn tôi Mỗi con số là những khuôn mặt đã biến dạng Của những người phụ nữ dệt may Bangladesh Tôi đã gặp họ vài năm về trước khi tôi là khách ở thành phố thủ đô của họ Dhaka. Chật ních xích lô và những bàn chân của họ, những bàn chân lặng lẽ đi từ bóng đêm đem bình minh đến hiên nhà tôi. Tôi đã vén chiếc rằm rèm chia cắt hai thế giới của chúng tôi và quan sát họ. Những khuôn mặt dịu hiền với bao lo toan vùi sâu trong mắt. Khi một dọn ngọn gió thoảng qua, nâng những chiếc khăn sau camis của họ bay lên, tôi thấy hy vọng tỏa sáng trên đôi má nám đen. Giờ đây, khi thân thể mỏng manh của họ đang bị chôn sâu dưới tầng tầng gạch, thép, xi măng, tôi vẫn thấy họ vá những mảnh đời đang vỡ bằng đôi tay cần cù chịu thương chịu khó thành những chiếc áo mà những người đàn ông phương Tây trả không hơn một đồng bạc lẻ. Và bây giờ, khi lòng tham của những ông chủ đổ sụp lên đầu, những bàn tay của họ vẫn may và trái tim của họ vẫn hát để biến những tiếng khóc của những đứa con đã hoặc chưa được sinh ra thành một bài hát lặng thầm. Một bài hát mà cả thế giới chẳng cần quan tâm, chẳng dừng lại để lắng nghe. Khi chúng ta căng lồng ngực tiến về phía trước với những bộ quần áo được may bằng những ngón tay dập nát đậm những giọt máu tàn hình của những người công nhân dệt may Bangladesh. Um, I have two, two children. Um, my daughter is 15 and my son is uh, 11. So a couple of days ago I skyped home and I talked to my son. And he, he told me, you know, mommy, you know, I know what you can buy for me. Because I've been asking him before the trip, you know, what can I buy for him? And he's always said, I don't know. So, you know, I was sure he was going to tell me buy a soccer ball or some sports clothes because he's, he's a great soccer player. So I said, uh, what, what can I buy you? He said, a plane ticket. <laughs> a plane ticket. He said, what, a plane ticket? Yeah, for home to fly home, for you to fly home early. Oh. <laughs> that was his gift that he wanted. Right? Oh. <laughs> so the next poem is uh, I have two poems for my kids in this collection, and the next uh, the next poem uh, we're going to read is uh, called Fears. As I embrace my children, listening to the chatter burst onto their lips. In Kenya, a mother and her two daughters hug the floor, pretending to be dead. Terrorists are sweeping through the Westgate shopping mall where they are, cutting down lives with bullets. 
As I embrace my children, my singing, sending them into sleep. In Pakistan, a mother digs for her child's leg, buried under the anger of a seven-magnitude earthquake. As I feel the perfume of my children's hair throb against my skin, in India, a mother clings to nothingness, weeping for her daughter who has been gang-raped. As I watch my children ease into their sleep in the U.S., a mother clutches the empty air, wailing for her two-year-old son whose life was stolen away by a maniac at a school shooting. As I watch dreams blossom onto my children's faces, I realize what a fool I am for forgetting to tell my children how much I love them before sleep drifts them away from my arms. Sự sợ hãi Khi tôi ôm những đứa con tôi lắng nghe tiếng díu rít bừng trên đôi môi của chúng. Ở Kenya, một người mẹ và hai đứa con ôm khư khư mặt sàn lạnh cóng của trung tâm thương mại Westgate giả chết. Những kẻ cực đoan đang quét qua chặt nát mạng, mạng sống bằng những loạt đạn khủng bố. Khi tôi ôm những đứa con tôi, câu hát trong lồng ngực đưa nôi cho chúng ngủ. Ở Pakistan, một người mẹ gào khóc bới tìm. Khúc chân còn sót lại của đứa con đang bị vùi chôn dưới sự cuồng nộ của trận động đất bảy độ Richter. Khi hương thóc những đứa con bồng bềnh trên mặt tôi, ở Ấn Độ một bà mẹ bám vào hư không khóc thương thân thể bầm dập của con gái, người đã bị những tên quỷ đội lốt đàn ông rằng xé. Khi tôi ngắm con tôi trôi vào giấc ngủ, ở nước Mỹ, một bà mẹ lấp đầy trái tim mình bằng khuôn mặt đẫm máu của đứa con trai. Thiên thần lên hai, đã bị một kẻ điên nã súng ở trường học. Khi tôi nhìn những giấc mơ tung tăng hát trên khuôn mặt của các con tôi, tôi chợt nhận ra mình là một kẻ ngốc. Khi để giấc ngủ kéo tuột, hai đứa ra khỏi tay tôi. Trước khi thầm thì với các con rằng tôi yêu chung. Um, so, the last poem we are going to read is called The Secret of Hoa Sen. Um, Hoa Sen is my favorite flower. It's uh, the national flower of Vietnam. And the village of my mother, believe it or not, is called the village of lotus flowers. So there are many ponds uh, filled with lotus flowers in the summer. And my mother said uh, when she was small, she was rowing uh, a bamboo ro- boat, a sampan, out to the pond um, when the sun was setting. And she was carrying a bowl of um, uh, green, green tea. And she would put a little bit of tea into, into a lotus flower. So at night, when the lotus closes, it will uh, soak the tea with the perfume. That is how lotus tea is made. Not in a factory nowadays, you know. So um, in the ancient time, um, you know, our royal uh, family would send people out to the lotus pond and they would collect the dew on the leaves and they brew the tea with it. That's how you drink green tea, not from the tap water. <laughs> so the last poem is The Secret of Hoa Sen, and I'm going to read in Vietnamese first. Bí mật Hoa Sen Mi mắt của đêm nhấp tôi lên chiếc thuyền nan, giạt trôi giữa những bông hoa đang hát. Hoa 
sen người yêu tôi gọi tên hoa mùi hương ngan ngát hồng môi anh hoa sen những bông hoa dịu dàng run rẩy căng mẩy ban mai những tán lá xanh mịn màng nín thở khi tôi nếm mùi thương nhớ trên khuôn mặt anh màu hồng sen bay lên chỉ có hoa sen biết giây phút tôi nở thành hoa trên run rẩy bầu ngực ánh sáng Secret of Poisson. Thank you all again for being here, and thank you, Patrick and Lennon Family and Foundation, for having us. The eyelid of night lifted me onto a sampan floating among the humming lotus. Poisson, my darling, called out their name, so their perfume blossomed onto his lips, unveiling the mist of a world that I didn't know existed. The Poisson swayed, shivered, breathless. Hold me, he said as if from another life. When I reached for the world of his face, I could taste our longing on his skin, glistening with a new sun rising between us. Only the Huasen witnessed how I became the flower that trembled on the chest of light. Thank you. forward to a lively Q&A. Um, if you guys could just wait till the mic gets to you, it's, um, it'll be better for the video and for everybody else to hear. So if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll bring the mic to you. Do you remember when you wrote your first poem, uh, how that felt, and um, when you thought of yourself as a poet and how that was important in your life? Thank you for, for this really interesting question. Um, I studied in Australia and uh, then I began working in Bangladesh. And for many years I felt like I was out of touch with my mother tongue. I miss speaking Vietnamese language and I could only speak Vietnamese with my children. And then when I got a job in Hanoi and I returned and I was surrounded by Vietnamese language and I realized how beautiful our language was. And I started writing. And I, I wrote without, you know, because I was a business uh, woman. I was really active in business. And I didn't read any literature, any poetry for a long time. So I wrote what I felt. And my poem, I remember, when I first wrote my poem, it felt like I was alive. That I was in touch with my soul again. And that's how it felt. Thank you. So I only started writing in 2006. So I didn't want to become a poet because, you know, Vietnam has everybody wants to be a poet. We have, <laughs> we have too many poets already. Uh, but in, uh, at that time, uh, there was something called Yahoo Blog. So for fun, I put it up on Yahoo Blog. And all of a sudden, I had many followers. And many people commented. And there was one person who said, you need to publish your poems. They are very different. And he put me in touch with the publisher and they agreed to publish it right away. So within the first year, I had my first collection. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. That was really very beautiful, both of you. Um, here in New Mexico, we have a pretty large Vietnamese community in Albuquerque. And as a matter of fact, in uh, different public places, there are three languages written on the wall often, English, Spanish, and Vietnamese. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, what is the relationship between American Vietnamese and those who are in Vietnam? And I think that there's a lot of back and forth because the few that I know go back to Vietnam frequently, but what is that relationship like, the Vietnamese who've come and made their homes in the United States? Okay. You know, um, it's a great question. When I, um, on, on this book tour, I, um, our first reading was in uh, Georgia Tech University, and there it was only one Vietnamese. In Atlanta. In Atlanta. Well, there's a very large Vietnamese community. Uh, there was only one Vietnamese in the commu- uh, in the audience of 270 people who came that night, and um, the organizers were really surprised. They told me that uh, they have a large Viet- American Vietnamese American community in their school, and they had printed out leaflets and given the leaflet to them and asked them to please come, and none of them did. And the the, per- the Vietnamese who came actually studied somewhere else. So. I think it's, um, I, I know why they didn't come, because I'm Vietnamese and I live in Vietnam. So some of them still think that I'm communist. And, uh, you know, there has been a lot of progress, um, which, uh, you know, reconciliation between the U.S. and Vietnam. But within, among the Vietnamese ourselves, uh, you know, um, the wounds are still very deep and they're not healing. And... One time I remember talking to the writers in Vietnam and we want to have workshops of Amer- Vietnamese-American writers and Vietnamese-Vietnamese writers, you know. We want to write about our love for our country and talk about how we can come together. But it's still a very sensitive subject and a lot of Vietnamese have come back to Vietnam. But I think a lot of others haven't come back because when they left, their life was destroyed. And I know how they felt because I grew up in the Mekong Delta and it was so difficult. Many things took place and in my class of 50, gradually, one classmate just disappeared. We didn't know the person, where the person went. The person had left on the boat and didn't tell anyone. The whole family left without telling anyone and I didn't know what happened to them. And for those people, I think uh, they suffer so much. So it's, it's still hard. And I, I hope that uh, there will be a future project when Vietnamese you know, come together because we are one nation. We are one people. Maybe Bruce will answer. No, thank you. This has been an extraordinary afternoon. I wanted to share not so much a question, but maybe a questioning that was rising up in me, and you answered it many times through your poetry. I wanted you to know that. Before I tell you that, I also wanted you to know, I I swear to you that those trees bent towards your poetry. I swear. (laughs) But it may seem selfish or crazy for an old man 
to be sometimes filled with questions about where to, what next. Especially an old man who's surrounded by beautiful people and beauty and art. But sometimes one just needs courage, as you know. And among the many images that carry courage that you bring, the image of your father continuing to plow and hold will stick deeply inside me. And I am grateful for that image. Thank you. born in a family in South Vietnam. Um, I come to this country four years ago. And uh, my grandpa and my family still have a deep, deep suffer from what happened in Vietnam at your time. So I was growing up without knowing that. I was, I was, I was an innocent kid without knowing the true meaning of the, what is the word, how it's impacted my family. And uh, the more I get far from my family, the more I get far from my culture, the more I feel closer to where I'm from, and the more I feel closer to uh, what's happening now. So more than just a question, I just want to say thank you to you. More than just a thank you, it's just like, it's a new, it's a new time right now. And this is a time for us to come together again and forgot about everything in the past. Yes. And, uh, Thank you. I just want to thank you so much to to bring me closer to home. That's a place is so so far away that sometimes I just forgot that I <laughs> I actually went and in in a place like this one, you know. Come on, come on. Any other questions? Poetry related? The stock market will be fun. <laughs> you love life? I love life. I love life. <laughs> uh, we were talking last night. We had a wonderful conversation. You were telling me about your uh, next project, which is involving children from American American GIs in Vietnam. It's just it's such a remarkable story. I thought maybe you could share a little bit of that. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I had a great time talking to, to Dan last night and I was astonished to know that he's been using uh, photos taken during the Vietnam War uh, in his photography class. He said he wants to teach his students how photography can help change people's lives can have changed people's perception. And uh, I shared with him about the project, um, the novel that I'm I'm going to write. I've just finished a historical historical novel, and I'm going to embark on the next one, which will be my PhD project. 
have been uh, accepted into a PhD program at Lancaster University in the UK. And uh, I, I, I wanted to write about, about this issue because in April last year, um, I read an article on, on BBC about um, an American veteran who came back to Vietnam after all these years. He had nothing but an album, a photo album in his hand. And he walked the streets of Saigon looking for his former Vietnamese girlfriend and their child. So when he left the war, he wanted to leave everything behind. And now he was grow- growing older. He had the need to find them. So he didn't know where they were. And he just had those photos. And he worked back in Saigon and the people were so helpful. And he found the people who used to live on the same street so um, they pointed him, they told him that the lady had died, but the son could go to America on the American Homecoming program. And actually, through the internet, they found each other. They found each other, and I, I remember reading that, and I imagined being the child, how the child would feel that your father had reject, rejected you for so long and now want to have you again in his life. And I thought how, when I was growing up on my street, there were a couple of um, mixed children. They were left behind because, you know, when the Americans withdrew from the war, it happened so suddenly that many children and and spouses or girlfriends were left behind and there was no way for them to to go. So these children, uh, because the, the mothers were very much discriminated against, they were forced to abandon the children. They burned all the papers. So those children were living on the street or with relatives, and they were really poor. And I remember I made fun of them, out of them with my friends. We used to mock them. We used to call them names. Only now that I understand how terrible I was at that time. But as a child, I, I think I was brainwashed themselves. So I, we had, gave them a very hard time. So those mixed children I knew, they didn't go to school. They didn't dare coming out of their house. The only thing they did was to work on the field. And I think in the 1989, the American government enacted a program called the American Homecoming Program. And they said all the mixed children could go to America without any papers to prove their origin. If they look mixed enough, they could go. And they could bring along their relatives. So can you imagine what happened? <laughs> Those kids, you know, we used to call them that's of life, would die. They, they turned into the children of gold. Because at that time, Vietnamese wanted to go, you know, to America, paradise on earth. So they, they fought for these kids, you know. They, they, they traded them on the market. You know? <clears throat> so many of them went. And I found out, that there were, uh, I read some researchers that told, that told me that there were 100,000 of them. Tremendous figures. Many of them went through terrible times. Many of them have found home here in America, but they're still suffering because they can't find their fathers. But some of them are still stuck in Vietnam because they don't look mixed enough. You know, so if you don't look mixed, you couldn't go because there, all the papers were burned. 
So uh, I really want to write this story. Uh, this will be my next project. If there are no more questions, I just want to thank Kwe Mai and Bruce for a spectacular event. And thank you all for coming. To remind you, we have a reception in our main building, a couple doors down, and I hope you all will join us. Thank you. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives present similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives.